Hello, this is Past Caring, a podcast from the Library and Archive at the Royal College of Nursing, the RCN. I'm Frances Reid and I work on the RCN's public events and exhibitions. Our aim is to shout loudly about the incredible and essential work that nurses do now and throughout the centuries. So this is a podcast that uses history to understand how we think about health and care today. This episode is about deaf nursing and mental health, and it's slightly different. I've been talking to British Sign Language, BSL, users, and so we've made two versions of this episode. In this audio podcast version, you'll sometimes hear interpreters voicing for my guests. We've also made a video version, which you can find on YouTube. I've put a link in the podcast description, and that video has BSL and closed captions too. A bit later in the episode, we'll hear from Richard D. France. He's a poet who writes and performs about his experience of mental health services as a deaf person. And there's also a conversation with historian Peter Brown about the history of sign language. But first, I talked to two people who have spent their careers working in and improving deaf nursing in the UK. It's a real pleasure to have Herbert Klein and Jennifer Meek on our special podcast vodcast episode. Herbert is an independent deaf advisor in mental health and Jennifer Meek is a deaf recovery community nurse at Birmingham and Solihull Mental Health Foundation Trust. A big thank you as well to David Wolfenden and Amy Woods who are interpreting for us today. So for those of you listening along, you will hear David's voice speaking Herbert's words and Jen's interpreter Amy will speak Jen's words and David is signing my questions for me. So, Herbert, I met you back in 2017 when you supported the exhibition at the RCN and we interviewed you back then as well for our oral history archive. And this was not long before you were then awarded a Lifetime Achievement Award for the incredible changes that you have made in mental health services and for, to quote you, stirring things up, which is something you've previously said about your role. Jennifer, Herbert suggested we invite you to take part as well because you are one of the first cohort of deaf nurses to qualify in the UK. So it's a real pleasure to meet you. I've heard a lot about you before. Um, So I'm excited to learn more about your work. I'm excited to be involved. Thank you. Herbert, a bit of background from you. Can you take us back to the 1990s? I think that was around the right time that you were doing a huge amount of work. Registered nurse training was still very closed off for deaf people and you were doing a lot of campaigning. Can you talk to us a little bit about that to set the scene and why it was needed? Yes, when I uh, first joined the NHS, it was in 1988. And at that time, the NHS wouldn't accept employees in the mental health service who were deaf. They were using me rather as a guinea pig, I think, at that time, to look at how deaf people can be incorporated into the workplace with clinicians and fellow professionals. After a six-month trial, they realised clearly how important it was to have deaf people working with hearing people in such mental health services. It was felt that the first step ought to be nursing. We wanted deaf people to train to become nurses, And we were looking at how, where, and in what way this could happen. So we had to start somewhere. 
we've joined the ENB, the English Nursing Board, for a first meeting and the automatic reaction was no, it is impossible for deaf people to become clinically qualified, which was a, a big surprise. They were saying uh, it's an absolute clear and evident risk to health and safety. And the risk was, from a hearing perspective, that clearly wouldn't be parallel with a, if there were deaf nurses looking at a risk of miscommunication, for example. It took 10 years to persuade them of this. And finally, they did agree that deaf people could access the training. And can you also give us an idea of what the issues were that deaf patients were coming up against without having a healthcare provider who spoke their language, who used their language? When deaf people get angry, get aggressive, their sign language gets bigger and faster and hearing people get quite scared. They uh, go into self-defence mode, pretending that they're understanding the issues that the deaf patient is talking about. They're normally able to pick up on that and say, you're not listening to me, you're paying no attention to the content of what I'm saying, you're just scared about the visuals. To have deaf expert language users on the clinical team, they can identify immediate problems in the way someone's talking, the way someone's communicating, that wouldn't have become apparent to a non-fluent hearing member of staff. Deaf people can pick up on speed of sign, um, affect of sign. So having deaf people on the team improves communication immediately. They're able to get to the nub of matters a lot quicker. Thank you, Herbert. Jen, I can see you nodding along there. So if I'm right, you had worked as a nursing assistant and a community support worker for a number of years. So you've already got extensive experience in mental health. And then you started your registered nurse training, was it in 2000? Um, and you were among, as we said, the first cohort of deaf registered mental health nurses. Yeah, that's right, 2000. So what was it like being one of the first? What did that feel like to you? Well, I started out as a HCA and I worked at Denmark House, which is now known as the Jasmine Suite. My manager asked me to go and have a look at this new deaf nursing project and I really wanted to, but at the same time, it was quite far away in Manchester. I was in Birmingham, it was gonna be a huge step. But I thought, well, you know, let's go and have a look and give it a go. And I'm really pleased that my lecturer really did campaign for me to go there and really help with my confidence levels. There was three of us on the original course with a number of hearing students, but the group just seemed to work really well. Um, the deaf and hearing students all worked really well together. They had an understanding of our culture. We gleaned an understanding of their culture. And at the end of those three years, experience looking back on it was just amazing. I'm, I'm really proud of what I did to show that, yes, as a deaf person, we can do it, come and get involved as well. And I'm really happy that I became a nurse because I know what a benefit it is to the patients. All of the patients really appreciate it. And I just want to reiterate that anybody who's deaf can become a nurse if they want to. Yeah, thank you. That's a really important message, isn't it? Um, and you touched a little bit there on working with hearing and deaf people. Can you say a bit more about that? Because I think that a lot of people may think, you know, hearing people work with hearing people and deaf people work with deaf people. But you were saying there was a real mix of different people communicating in different ways. How was that? 
Um, yeah, there was. When I originally applied, I was quite surprised to find it was um, a mixed ward because we didn't fill enough of the beds with our deaf patients. So we had to fulfill with hearing patients. But the patients were really surprised when I arrived and they were able to communicate with me in their first language. So the hearing patients seemed a little bit reticent at first, but soon realised that it didn't cause any issues because I had access to work, I had interpreters with me. Um, I said, you know, come and have a chat, I can get the interpreter over. It was really smooth, everybody worked really well together, it was quite cohesive really. Um, and I had a colleague who was hearing who also learnt to sign and I encouraged that as much as I could, explained kind of communication tips and issues with our deaf clients and I was able to offer that support to them with the deaf clients and they offered it to me with the hearing patients so it was it didn't really make a difference and you can work with anybody it doesn't matter if they're deaf or hearing. I want to ask you Herbert a bit about language because I was so this is one of the things I was so fascinated to learn about when we were working on the exhibition you developed a book called Sign Language in Mental Health, which was a sort of pictorial BSL vocabulary of different mental health terms, um, like schizophrenia, for example. And we had this on display in the exhibition. Can you tell us a little bit about why that book was needed? When uh, I began in mental health, it became pretty soon very obvious that there were clinical terms, vocabulary and jargon that isn't commonly at use in sign language. And a lot of the Deaf people and interpreters would have to spell it, but it became quite uh, difficult to follow because it wasn't BSL grammar. Now, the deaf community were talking about such things. They were talking about being fed up and depressed, nervous and uh, anxious, and were able to express that at different levels, but there was no, no understanding that there was an actual separate and unique clinical term for such things. The term depression for example, is used commonly in the psychiatric field. To wait until a deaf person signs depression might have missed a symptom. So to have a formal clinical word that could then be compared to and contrasted to a particular way of signing that, that concept uh, was important. There used to be, for example, uh, no evidence that deaf people suffered from depression. And it wasn't until the signs were developed, these books were developed, these vocabulary lists were developed, that we were able to start to diagnose this isn't just sadness, this isn't just loneliness. Ah, this is actually depression. And a lot of deaf people wouldn't access the English term. It needed the vocabulary to be able to begin to identify deaf people with mental illness. And if you're in that state, it's very difficult for you to follow good language anyway, at the best of times. So a lot of them would be very scared. But to have it in BSL, clearly in their own language, it's a, a relief. You're a lot more able to receive good treatment and good interventions. And Jennifer, on this theme of language then, were you then seeing patients who for the first time were being treated by somebody who uses the same language as them? Because that must have been a real relief for some of the people that you were seeing. Yes, yeah. Um, when I meet a deaf patient, they'll often say, are you deaf? And I'll say, yes, I'm deaf and I'm a qualified nurse. And they'll go you're a qualified nurse, the same as a hearing person. And I'll say, yes. And then it all comes out. Um, they seem a lot more relaxed, um, 
relieved to know that they're going to understand what I'm going to say because they've obviously been having these conversations with hearing professionals and not had that level of understanding. So they have a level of comfort where they will tell me a lot more and I'll say, you know, we're going to go through your recovery journey. And I think a lot of patients recover a lot quicker because they've got that ability to have that established relationship through language and culture and understanding. Also, I've just been reminded of something else we had in the exhibition. Herbert, do you remember the toolkit that you lent us? And it was developed by a deaf neuropsychologist, Dr Joanna Atkinson, and it detailed all the different ways that a deaf person might experience hearing voices. And it was one of the most fascinating items I think we've ever had on display in one of our exhibitions. And it was so eye-opening for so many people And it illustrated an experience that is so misunderstood and so unknown. Can you talk a bit about that? Yes, when there's psychiatric interviews for deaf people who are suffering symptoms or phenomena that could be unusual voices, for example, it may well be that they are hearing voices, but to translate that into something visual in your questioning is a very complex thing. How do we describe the type of auditory or other hallucinations that they're experiencing. They're very broad and wide-ranging and can be extremely particular to the individual. BSL interpreters, some of the BSL interpreters themselves had never worked in mental health before that time. They were using inappropriate signs. They would be talking about, do you ever hear voices? That's not appropriate for a lot, of the, a lot of the patients we're talking about. They're not hearing voices necessarily, but they are experiencing a parallel phenomenon. So Joanna Atkinson developed these 50 different visual uh, representations of what type of hallucination they are experiencing. Are they experiencing disembodied lips talking to them, for example? Are they experiencing signs or hands that are talking to them? And and how are they doing that? Are they uh, exerting control or not? And it's not only for deaf people, but indeed for hearing patients as well, who don't get the term, don't get the understanding. These visual representations have helped them too. It's, It's very sensitive and it's also highly risky to misunderstand someone's hallucinations. So it's been invaluable, this resource from Dr Atkinson. What does good, strong communication look like for you? Okay, um... I think if you're with a client and you're just passing information backwards and forwards, it's not going to work well. I think if you have that inference, a deeper understanding with each other and having a real full awareness of what people mean, then that's what good communication is. I think uh, I know a lot of deaf people do like to talk and talk and talk and talk and they'll give you every minute detail from A to Z. Um, But I think it's sharing information with professionals but with that deeper understanding in place, cohesively working as a team to ensure that everybody understands what people are saying and with their deaf clients understanding that they may need a bit more time. Herbert, I think a lot of people were surprised, weren't they, that access to registered nurse training for deaf people was so recent. We're talking about recent history here, really. What work is there still to do from your perspective? I think this is a difficult question. We're in the 21st century now, aren't we? And there's still barriers for uh, aspiring deaf professionals who are just unable to access appropriate courses. It's very much a postcode lottery. 
Some places provide fantastically accessible services. They're a very aware learning environment and others are clearly years behind. They're very lacking in awareness of deaf people's potential. And it really is often up to the leadership in such organisations to be sufficiently aware of deaf issues and to have thoughtful and encouraging deaf experts uh, working with them. But of course, as soon as a hearing person uh, leaves uh, from the top and then someone else is appointed, all of that has to start all over again. There needs to be something firmly embedded in society that is more about what Jennifer exemplifies, which is that deaf people can, not deaf people can't. And that attitude needs to be prevalent in, in the organisations. And it, that's, I think, uh, the fundamental influence that society needs now. In Birmingham, unfortunately, I am the only deaf qualified nurse in Birmingham. Manchester has quite a few higher numbers than London do. Um, I'm actually in liaison with Birmingham City Council as of last year to give the explanation of my role, the importance of it, and how we want to encourage more deaf nurses to come into the field. Unfortunately, COVID has put a bit of a stopper on that, but I am in talks with Birmingham City University in how we can try and open up the course to be more accessible to a deaf cohort. Herbert. Health Education England, the HEE, they have just become aware uh, that a lot of medical training doesn't attract deaf applicants. And they're trying to change their policy to actually enable deaf applicants to apply. Anything that can be done by hearing people, psychiatry, psychology, nursing, can be done by deaf people with the right attitude. Thank you. Thank you, Herbert. I think that is a perfect place to end. Otherwise, we will be talking all day. Thank you, Herbert. Thank you, Jennifer, so much for your time and for your really quite unique perspective into mental health nursing and working with you, Herbert, as well over the years. I've learned a huge amount. Um, so thank you for joining us again to revisit this. Um, it's been a real pleasure. The brilliant Herbert Klein and Jennifer Meek voiced by David Wolfenden and Amy Woods. My next guest, Richard D. France, has many years' experience of navigating the mental health system as a deaf person. His poetry captures these stories of his crazy life, as he calls it. I first met Richard at the RCN when he performed on stage for us using both spoken English and BSL. We started with Richard reading his poem, This Seeping Madness, and that's from his book, The Rise After the Fall. This seeping madness, madness is prevailing. It is everywhere. Only today it will eaten, for we'd go insane otherwise. All these doctors and nurses work all hours to save us. We, the barking nonsense mad, Wish to roam the streets, Philly. It is a tough life being insane. You can't fill in an application form. The shops don't suck on it either. It's imposed through misfortune, a path littered with blemishes. No one knows where it comes from, nor have witnessed to its birth done. There is nothing quite like madness, a sense of futile sorrow, followed by a trigger-happy smile. Read of those who are inflicted 
take no pride in this impulse weight. It takes more than strength to open red written eyes, read the those who are inflicted, find no joy in living this way. What are we to do but try the best for another tomorrow to come? Read the those who are inflicted, read the those who are barking mad. Thank you so much, Richard. I love hearing your poems always. So, Richard, that was This Seeping Madness, and that's from your book, The Rise After the Fall. And it's a collection of poems about your time at Bluebell Ward in Springfield Hospital, and that's in Tooting, South London. And that's a psychiatric unit for deaf patients. Richard, you have many stories to tell, and we're going to talk some more about Bluebell Ward in particular. But can you first tell us a bit about what brought you to Bluebell Ward in the first place? Um, I was started with a, a serious suicide attempt, which man that ended up in the King College Hospital in Denmark. And while I was recovering, I posted some messages on Facebook. And there was a community psychiatric nurse, Anna Whaley. And she contacted my family and talked about the possibility of me going to Bluebell. I'd never heard of Bluebell before, but I found out it was a specialist at Sarkasso Hospital. And I also recognised that I had communication means, which is signing. Um, I've had a history of signing mainstream Sarkasso Hospital, but there's always been a lot of conflict because of communication, especially when I'm on a ward with other patients that have Sarkasso illness. And I can't communicate because I have to read. It makes people paranoid. And also, I can't always read everybody. So, the protest of that was I ended up in Bluebell by surprise, but it was a blessing, really. And in the introduction of your book, you say how surreal it was to be taken to a place where the nursing team and the patients are all using sign language. And you say it's a language that immediately put you at ease. You also mentioned things like the forthright questions that only the deaf community understands. Can you tell us a bit more about how that felt to see your own culture among your nurses and your doctors? The first time I went into Bluebell Ward, I was in a wheelchair. I was quite terrified because I sort of expected a bit of violence. But it was very calm and the patients were all signing. It was a very surreal experience. But when I woke up the next morning, I opened the door and a nurse came along and said, Good morning, Richard. Come and have some breakfast. I had to go back into my room, slam the door shut because I just could not believe what had happened. After about five minutes, I came out again and my nurses were signing. I just felt like um, I'd come home. I felt I could be very relaxed, be myself, and I was only able to express myself freely. And what was surprising was the psychiatrist, the psychologist, all the nurses, they were all signing, and it was a very surreal experience. Also, the key singers were the specialist psychiatrists and psychologists. They understand the um, issues of deaf identity, 
even people don't really understand because they don't have the same experiences that we do going through life. The good thing about Bluebell Ward was the nurses, if I felt like I wanted to talk, they would be signing away and I felt I was able to express my feelings, my emotions and my complex without feeling the pressure of having to read and saying pardon, I don't understand. Some people say, well, I don't understand language interpreter, but I don't like communicating through a third person. I like to be able to communicate directly with a psychiatrist and psychologist, and it was um, absolutely amazing. And to be honest, if those nurses were unable to use sign language, I don't think I would be where I am today, so it's a blessing for them, really. Richard, can I ask how old you were when you went to Bluebell Ward and when you first had mental health challenges? Wow, that's a very interesting question. The first time I experienced mental health, I was 23. And when I went into Bluebell Ward, I was 45. So it felt like I'd been fighting for 22 years to be able to get the treatment I needed. But because, because I'm able to speak, everybody assumes I can communicate. But it's not about that, it's about having that level of trust, that level of empathy and the level of confidentiality. That makes me feel comfortable to talk about the conflict I would have in my mind. I'd like to ask you about BSL and performance. Can you talk about that relationship between signing and performing and how you came to use that as a way to talk about your mental health? Very good. Um, in the deaf community in England, there's very, very few people who are able to express the issues of mental health using sign language. And for me, my first language is not spoken language, it's not sign language, it's written language and I'm able to express those words on the page into a sign language in a way that the deaf community can understand. Like I said, there's very few people in the deaf community that can talk about it openly, and it makes it much harder because it's a small community and there's a lot of stigma, stigma in the deaf community. If I say I have a mental health issue, then somebody in Glasgow will hear about it in an hour's time, that's how small the community is. And the way I express and sign my poem enables deaf people to empathise with the issues of mental health. Uh, so it gives them the confidence to be able to talk about mental health because it's a very serious issue. There's very, very few support services for deaf people, because we can't just pick up the phone and go, oh, I'm feeling suicidal. We can't do that. We have to rely on being able to sign. As far as I know, there's only two organisations in the UK that provide that service, so I'm trying to encourage the deaf community to open up a bit more, talk about mental health and not feel any embarrassment about it. For me, mental health doesn't discriminate. It doesn't matter what ethnicity you are. It doesn't matter what religion you follow. It doesn't matter. Mental health does not discriminate. 
But I do feel that mainstream services provide a lot of support for hearing people because they can just pick up the phone. But with the deaf community, they're very enclosed, very sheltered. So with my poems, I'm trying to encourage people to open up, talk about mental health, in the same way as I say, would you like a cup of tea? No, everybody says, yes, I'd love a cup of tea, so I want people to feel on the same level of being able to say, by the way, I think I have a mental health issue, I need to be able to sign about it. And that is the key to recovery. Because if we don't have people that understand mental health and sign language, it becomes very, very difficult to talk about. Mm. Before our final poem, I just want to ask you about the role of humour because you use a lot of humour and you laugh in your poems and your movements can be quite funny sometimes. But, you know, you just said mental health is a very serious issue and you bring those two things together so well. What, for you, is the role of humour in your poems? Um, because I've had a lot of psychiatric uh, hospital experiences have been what they call clinically depressed. And when you're clinically depressed, you feel so low that it becomes funny. It's not a very nice experience when you're having psychosis, but you have to laugh. Because at the end of the day, you can have no money taken away, you can have no hours taken away, but you can't have no sense of humour taken away. And I feel that if I bring in the humour, of somebody who has mental health issues, it makes it more comfortable, more absorbent to talk about mental health. And I think, no, mental health is funny, because if you look at the television programmes, they're quite serious about it, very raw. But why can't we laugh about mental health? It's funny, it's funny, it is funny. And at the same time, it isn't funny. So there's a bit of a contradiction going off here. But if we bring humour into mental health, then it allows people to have a laugh and say, oh, I wouldn't believe it, I'm really depressed. And then I was like, no, that's really good start. <laughs> mental health is funny because that way it becomes more gentle, more tender to be able to talk mm. about the issues. And I found if I lose mental health, it's entertain people more losing humour. And it also allows them to relax a bit more, but have a laugh about it. Because at the end of the day, I don't want to be performing my poems and people go on really sad. I want them to enjoy my performance and go on with a big smile. That's what it should be all about. And at the same time, I've had a lot of experience in Sarkasso Hospital that are completely surreal. That when I think about it now, what can I do better? One more poem. Uh, I think we've chosen Future Famine, so I'll hand over to you. Future Famine. Oh, futile future, where are you when all I seek is new? Why are you so elusive when I am so blind? I see that all the tomorrows swept so far into a distance that eyes cannot roll. Oh, futile future, where are you when I unirn low? Everywhere in this cell confined, I see thee, a travesty of time, expiration aid, when today should by rise be tomorrow. Never cease the shattering forces of the mind, 
that necessary is to condemn paranoia of that I'm living right now is the very future of that nonsense that I mythically see. Oh, futile, futile, where are you tonight? The seasoning of the day and the brings night fall to my darkness, nor will light impenetrate my blind, while I serve I and know in this eternal torment of the tomorrow that my mind see, oh, indeed desire, Oh, futile, futile, where do you lie? I cannot rest for today it is turmoil. Oh, come to me and take me away for this sense of time, sand and sill I cannot bear as it takes me by. Oh, futile, futile, please do not elude me for I come to realize after all I am the futile. I am the future. That's a great end to our conversation. Richard, thank you so much for sharing your experiences and your poetry with us. It's been such a pleasure. You can hear more from Richard about his life by watching the recording of the performance he gave for us at the RCN in 2019. And that's on YouTube. So I've put a link in the podcast description. You're listening to Pass Caring, a podcast from the Royal College of Nursing Library and Archive. Remember, you can still show your support by getting involved in the RCN's Fair Pay for Nursing campaign. Head to rcn.org.uk or follow the hashtag on Twitter, Fair Pay for Nursing. In the history of British Sign Language, there is one really important date. 1792 was the year that the London Asylum for the Deaf and Dumb was founded. It was the first free school for deaf children, and it was here that we can find the roots of British Sign Language. Peter Brown is a deaf historian and BSL tutor. He's uncovered the story of Sarah Pouncebe, a pupil at the London Asylum, who he's identified as a key figure in the story of BSL. In this interview, you will hear the voice of Paul Hollingdrake speaking Peter's words. Don't forget, you can see this interview in BSL and with captions via the link to YouTube in the podcast description. I began by asking Peter to tell me all about Sarah Pounceby. Sarah is a really, really important person in the British deaf community and for the British deaf community. She was born deaf in East London. Sarah had a number of deaf siblings in the family who all used sign language. So when the London Asylum for the Deaf and Dumb was founded in 1792, there were six pupils that went there, including Sarah. And Sarah started to introduce the sign language and gestures that her family used in the home to the rest of her classmates. And that's where we see the start of the development of modern BSL that is still in use today. And it's modern BSL that's helped create a new deaf community in the UK. Before 1792, we had the Braidwood Academy, which was a private school for deaf children. It was set up in Edinburgh in Scotland in 1760. Uh, Braidwood moved to London and passed away after a few years in 1806. The sign language used by Braidwood passed away with him. So in 1792, we had this new school with these children here. And the headmaster at the time, Joseph Watson, had worked with Braidwood. He allowed the 
sign language that Sarah used at home uh, to be passed on and used within the classroom. The modern BSL we have after this date is what continues with us today. And do we know much about any kind of healthcare provision for the pupils at the school? The London Asylum did have its own small hospital. So we had the school and just just behind it, there was a, a small hospital building. And that meant that any deaf children who might fall ill would be able to be sent along to this hospital and they'd have access in that hospital building in sign language. Okay, and it might have been sign language similar to what Sarah had developed within her family? Yes, yes. There were a number of deaths that we have records of at that time, unfortunately. Because of communication barriers, do you think? Or that was a contributing factor? No, before 1880, which was where the Milan Conference on the Education of Deaf Children made a decision on how language was used within education. There didn't seem to be any access issues before that. Deaf people were quite literate. They were able to read and write to quite a high level. And what we, we see is hearing people at that time often were able to fingerspell and use the alphabet in sign language. And even if they weren't, they could write back and forth to communicate. Um, people at that time, deaf people at that time, had very good English skills. What happens from 1880 uh, onwards is oralism took over. So sign language wasn't allowed in the education settings. And because of that, they didn't have access to education quite so easily. We see a, a lot of more mental health issues from 1880 onwards. Oralism where um, people needed to rely on residual hearing and lip reading in education, that kind of took a bit of a pause during the wartime because a lot of uh, hearing people who would have taught with oralist methods needed to go and uh, join the war effort. And we see that after the World Wars, when those staff are able to come back, there's a bit of a redoubling of oralist teaching methods. And we see mental health issues pick up again because deaf children didn't have access to uh, a language to be educated in, didn't have full access to sign language, as opposed to English where there's, they don't have fluent access. So why, why do you think maybe we don't know? Why was oralism being pushed as a way to communicate over sign language that looking at families like Sarah's was being naturally used in families in, at their home? Why was oralism viewed as something that was better? What we... Uh, needs to remember is from 1792 through to about 1860. People didn't particularly see any issues with sign language, didn't have any particularly strong opinions. It was where we see Darwin, Charles Darwin, and his theories of evolution that started to be publicised and spread around the time. We see theories of kind of evolution and what we see is a different perspective from people of sign language and it began to be seen as a primitive monkey language um, which meant things were ended up being a lot worse for the deaf communities and people using sign language at the time. Gosh okay so it was um, it was a, a social thing and other people's perceptions of deaf people and um, discrimination I guess. Yes so it was it was Darwin's theories were I believe the main issue and as Darwin's theories kind of spread it led to a lot of issues for the deaf community and really was a damaging effect. So it, that was in the 1860s. Prior to this time, people didn't particularly regard sign language negatively at all. And it's quite interesting that at that time within schools, 
people would visit the London Asylum uh, to have a look around and if someone asked the child a question and said, oh, why are you deaf? They'd probably respond, oh, it's because of God. There was no negative thought about it. And it was as the, the scientific theories took off that those impacted people's perceptions and led to a lot of harm for the deaf community. That's fascinating. That's so interesting. Um, so we're going to jump forward a little bit in my questioning now, because when we talked over email, Peter, you said that this period between 1792 and 1948, you described as the golden years. So why does 1948 mark the end of those golden years for you? Because we've also got the arrival of the NHS at that time. So it's kind of surprising that this kind of organised healthcare service um, sees the end of this golden year for, for deaf people? Yes, so uh, it's a little complex. I'm going to try my best to summarise it. That period was really the golden age for deaf people, able to use sign language without any issues. And what we see during that time is there's not really any significant reporting of mental health issues in the deaf community. In 1948, as I mentioned before, we have the redoubling of oralist teaching methods and we see more and more mental health problems as a result of that. And there are a lot more hospitalisation and institutionalisation uh, of deaf people because people thought, oh, they were stupid or they had cognitive processing issues. Uh, and it was John Denmark, I believe he was a psychologist, and it was his research that identified the problem that was going on was no sort of cognitive defect it was just a mental health problem because these people going through the education system had language deprivation they weren't being given access to a language that was accessible for them so he was saying you know these deaf people aren't stupid they're they're frustrated they're unable to communicate and that's leading to these mental health issues so it's, it was john denmark's research that then developed a better understanding of, of what was going on there. So why were people being institutionalised then? Was it purely just for being deaf? Yes, yes. It was because of behavioural problems. People were frustrated. A lot of people's attitudes towards sign language was very, very negative. People were taking these in and thinking that, oh, I can't use sign language. They were told in school, you can't use it. They're, they're taking in all these negative attitudes and they're therefore not communicating. They're not using the language they know. And they're denied the ability to communicate outside of themselves, which meant led mm -hmm. to a kind of isolation and communication and frustration problems. So the labelling of sign language as an inferior language led to all this language deprivation. And it's the language deprivation that has caused mental health issues within the deaf community. From the 60s onwards, we do see an improvement up until now. And is that to do with people being more accepting and welcoming of, of sign language as a way of communicating? Yes, yes. So um, there is a lot more acceptance now. Um, we're almost getting back to the enlightened times of 1792. <laughs> um, so I think now what we are seeing, though, is a lot of deaf schools are kind of going back again towards oralist teaching methods because of the widespread adoption of cochlear implants in children. So children in school who use cochlear implants in their early years are educated orally. But what we see is a lot of the time at 13 or 14, a lot of these children start to kind of question their use of cochlear implants and get quite frustrated with them. And a lot of them start to reject them at this point. And that's when we then see mental health issues as they don't have access to full access to a language. So we're seeing, in some cases, hospitalizations with mental health issues. Mm, mm. 
It's interesting, isn't it? It's a really interesting debate. Um, so, uh, yeah, we could talk for a long time about this very, very long history. Um, so it's nearly two, is it 230 years ago since Sarah first brought her own sign language to her school. Um, and it's quite amazing to reflect that it was a student at the school that was really pioneering that. So do people celebrate Sarah's work, I guess, in the deaf community today? It's uh, interesting. Sarah, I found through my research and I uncovered uh, the information about her about two years ago. So I've, I've been gathering lots of little pieces and, and piecing stuff together. I was able to publish a short article in the British Deaf History, uh, their journal, uh, Deaf History Journal, sorry, yes, uh, last year. This information was only being published last year about Sarah. This is 2020. It's wow. still getting out there. It's not really widespread knowledge yet. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's definitely not gone all the way out to everyone. So it's really the knowledge is only a couple of years old that this has been rediscovered in. And the British deaf community aren't massively aware of Sarah. Um, there, there is some interest and it's, it's, it's starting to grow a little bit more, though. OK, well, Sarah Pouncebe, that's something we will all remember and hopefully our listeners and viewers will also remember. So um, hopefully we've done our little bit here today of um, getting her contribution to deaf culture out there a bit more. Peter Brown, it has been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for telling us this amazing story. And thank you so much, Paul, for interpreting for us today. That was Peter Brown and the voice of Paul Hollingdrake. Thanks for listening to me, Frances Reed, and the Past Caring podcast from the RCN Library and Archive, produced by Natalie Steed. Huge thanks to all my amazing guests and for the brilliant support of our interpreters on this episode. Remember, you can watch a BSL version of this episode on YouTube, along with previous episodes which have been subtitled check the podcast description for that link. Subscribe to Past Caring wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>